Hello, and welcome to another podcast from Rheumatology Consultant. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashaw. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Kristen Highland, Director of the Rheumatic Lung Disease Program at the Cleveland Clinic, about systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease. Hi, my name is Kristen Highland. I am a pulmonary critical care physician. I'm also board certified in rheumatology. I'm director of the Rheumatic Lung Disease Program at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Highland. It's really good to have you here To Let's start off with the basics. Can you give us a brief overview of what systemic sclerosis is, how, and the different presentations that you see? Absolutely. This is a rheumatologic disease. There are two types, localized scleroderma, which is confined to the skin. And then there's systemic sclerosis, which has skin involvement as well as internal organ involvement. And then systemic sclerosis has a number of variants. There is limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis, which is skin involvement that is limited to below the elbows, below the knees, and can involve the face and neck versus diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, where there's more skin involvement above the knees and above the elbows and can be on the trunk. And then there's a variant called systemic sclerosis sine scleroderma. And these are people who have the characteristic internal organ involvement, the characteristic antibodies that go with the disease, but they don't have the skin involvement. Sounds like it could be an enormous diagnostic challenge. Absolutely. And part of the problem is that the patients without the typical skin involvement are often presenting to, you know, a pulmonologist, for instance, for interstitial lung disease. You know, is this idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is kind of bread and better, you know, pulmonary, um, but without heightened sense of curiosity by the pulmonologist, you might miss those subtle features of scleroderma. And just to add an extra layer of complexity is that these rheumatologic diseases often overlap. So sometimes patients have joint pain and they get labeled rheumatoid arthritis, or they have some features of rheumatoid arthritis plus some scleroderma, or very commonly features of lupus or features of polymyositis or dermatomyositis where they have some muscle involvement. And so then you're not sure what rheumatologic disease you're treating. Who's most likely to develop systemic sclerosis? Well, it's more common in females as is most of our autoimmune conditions. It tends to be a little more prevalent in African-Americans. Generally occurs within the fourth to fifth decade of life. The greatest prevalence of scleroderma is with the the Choctaw Indians. Within that Native American population, the prevalence of scleroderma is probably 300 times that of anywhere else in the world. What is the overall prevalence, say, in the United States? I think it's one to two per 100,000 patient population. If you talk to the average community-based rheumatologist, you know, they can probably count their scleroderma patients on one or maybe two hands. 
So the diagnosis of scleroderma is based on a set of criteria that were updated in 2013 by the European League Against Rheumatism and American College of Rheumatology. And so, well, with the exception of diffuse skin involvement, there is no one criteria that can give you the diagnosis of scleroderma. And and so these criteria are a combination of fibrotic features, vascular features, and immunologic features. And you have to have nine points to get your diagnosis of scleroderma. So if you do have skin thickening that is above your knuckles, that's enough. So you can have one criteria. But if you only maybe have distal finger involvement, you need a variety of other criteria to to make that diagnosis. So you can get points for having interstitial lung disease. You can get points for having pulmonary hypertension, Raynaud's phenomenon, digital pits for digital ulcers, or even just puffy fingers, telangiectasias. You can also get points for the the characteristic rheumatologic antibodies that go with scleroderma, such as the SCL70 antibody or the anti-centromere antibody or one called RNA polymerase 3. And all those are weighted differently. They are assigned a different number of points and you add them up together. And if you have nine, that's, you know, a definite diagnosis of scleroderma. But if you have eight points, that doesn't mean you don't have scleroderma. It just means that for research purposes, um, you don't meet the strict criteria. That's how you make the diagnosis. And certainly when we see those scleroderma specific antibodies, you know, we start watching that patient pretty carefully to see, you know, what's, what's going to evolve. You mentioned interstitial lung disease, and of course, this is a very serious complication. What percentage of patients with scleroderma go on to develop ILD? And are there certain patients that are at greater risk? So that's a, that's a good question. It depends on how you're looking for interstitial lung disease. If you do high resolution chest CT scan, you can probably see at least a little bit of interstitial lung disease in over 80% of patients. Fortunately, clinically significant interstitial lung disease is 40% or less than that. Um, We worry about interstitial lung disease is something that happens early in the disease course. So the minute you get your diagnosis of scleroderma, we recommend getting an HRCT as well as pulmonary function test, breathing tests to screen for interstitial lung disease. And, And even with normal pulmonary function testing, the HRCT can have some early abnormalities. And it's with the new diagnosis of scleroderma, is when we see the greatest decline in lung function if it's going to happen. So we want to really be looking for interstitial lung disease and following patients very carefully along those lines really early. And then the, the farther away you get from your diagnosis, you know, the less you kind of have to worry about the interstitial lung disease, but then you start worrying about the pulmonary hypertension, which tends to occur later in the disease course. And there are risk factors for progressive interstitial lung disease. 
you know, any form of scleroderma can get ILD, but we think about it a little bit more in the diffuse cutaneous variant. We think about it more in patients who have that SCL70 or antitoposomerase 1 antibody. So those are a little bit more frequent early disease. Those who also have primary cardiac dysfunction, um, we worry about severe interstitial lung disease in African-Americans in particular, and especially in male African-Americans, they can have, you know, kind of the worst prognosis as, as far as interstitial lung disease goes. Are there signs and symptoms that a rheumatologist might notice that would be an indication that they're starting this? Sometimes that's hard to tease out with patients with an underlying rheumatologic disease because the first symptom is shortness of breath or dyspnea with exertion. And so sometimes these patients are not moving around a lot because they just feel bad because of their disease. So they might not know that they're short of breath because your first symptoms are gonna be when you really exert yourself. If you kind of press your patient, you know, can you go to the grocery store? Can you carry your groceries in? Can you go up a flight of stairs? Sometimes they'll be able to tell you, yeah, you know, I'm not, I don't do as well as I did, you know, five years ago. A non-productive cough is very, very common. Patients may complain of that or may endorse it if you ask it. And then on exam, you can hear crackles um, with your stethoscope on examination. So the presence of crackles should definitely be a clue that, you know, there's probably some interstitial lung disease. So when you find interstitial lung disease, what can you do about it? You know, we think about the three pathways that are at play, um, which is the fibrotic pathway, the inflammatory pathway, and the vascular pathway. We have therapies that target that fibrotic pathway and therapies that are immunomodulators. So our first little bit of hope that we could do something to improve or at least slow the rate of decline in pulmonary function was with cyclophosphamide, which is a, has cumulative side effects. So something that you can't take forever without paying the consequences. Then mycophenolate was compared to cyclophosphamide. That was scleroderma lung study number two. And, and mycophenolate is something that people can take long-term. It's used in the, in the transplant world. And so that study showed that just like cyclophosphamide, there's a modest improvement in, in pulmonary function testing in people that got that. So it's a, a viable alternative. And then staying on the immunomodulator side, there was recently a study. It was actually a skin study for people with very early scleroderma, very inflamed phenotype. So their inflammatory markers were up. And so the drug tocilizumab was tried and it, it was a NAGO study in regards to the skin, but they looked at the lungs as a secondary endpoint. First of all, what they found is despite having normal function, 65% of the patients had evidence of interstitial lung disease on CT scan. So they were finding interstitial lung disease early. And then the patient's that were randomized to tocilizumab versus the patients randomized to placebo that had that evidence of interstitial lung disease. Almost 25% of the placebo group had a decline in their forced vital capacity by 10% at 48 weeks, which is a substantial difference, a clinically significant difference, whereas it was only 8% in the tocilizumab group. 
And then they looked at quantitative fibrosis scores and by CT scan. And it showed some improvement in fibrosis in people getting tocilizumab. And so with that data, um, tocilizumab is now FDA approved for scleroderma-associated interstitial lung disease, recognizing that it was studied in a very specific scleroderma patient population. If you move over to the fibrotic side, you know, there are two antifibrotics that are FDA approved for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that have both been looked at in scleroderma. So perfenardone is actually the agent that's being looked at in scleroderma lung study number three, which is um, finishing up. And those patients are being randomized to upfront combination therapy. So mycophenolate plus perfenadone versus mycophenolate plus placebo. So hopefully we'll have some data on that soon. The other study called the census study randomized patients to nintendinib versus placebo. And patients were able to be on background mycophenolate or methotrexate, but they had to be on stable dose for six months. And in that study, um, nintendinib slowed the rate of forced vital capacity decline compared to placebo with a, I think it's a 44% risk reduction. So that's, you know, definitely clinically and statistically significant. And, and that was a very large study, the largest scleroderma ILD study to date, 580 patients, half of whom were on background mycophenolate and half of whom, like many in um, other countries that don't have availability of mycophenolate, were just on nintendinib monotherapy. Based on those data, um, intendative got FDA approved for scleroderma-associated interstitial lung disease. The study wasn't designed to determine is combination better than monotherapy. If you look at the subgroup analyses, combination therapy seems to be numerically better than either monotherapy and definitely better than nothing. So I think there will likely be a movement where we're targeting both pathways. I think we're trying to sort all that out still. Do you have any additional thoughts or advice you'd like to share with rheumatologists about diagnosing and caring for patients with scleroderma and associated interstitial lung disease? I would say screen, 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 screen. That's number one. Get that first CT scan. Get those PFTs. And then particularly if your patient has newly diagnosed scleroderma, get repeat pulmonary function testing every three to six months for the first three to five years of their disease. And then if nothing's happening, you can space it out to, you know, yearly. But in that initial stage, look, look, look for, for the interstitial lung disease because we now have therapies. Fibrosis is not reversible. So if we can prevent it, if we can intervene before we have that downhill slide, um, we can really preserve, you know, exercise tolerance and functional ability and independence and quality of life for our scleroderma patients. So I feel like it's a new era in scleroderma. There's a lot of hope. I'm excited to be part of it.